Good morning, guys. This is the Agent Podcast. I'm your host, Oliver Cordley. And today I have an amazing guest for you guys, Dr. Dawn Nicholson. So today we're going to help you make sure you maximize your time at university to prepare you for professional life. Now, Dawn has a perfect balance for the topic, being among senior ranks at Morgan Stanley and PwC, as well as being currently a lecturer at the University of Kent. Dawn, thank you very much for coming on today. So before we start, just uh, give us a quick intro. Sure. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. So basically, I graduated back in the 1980s. Uh, there was a very, very deep recession at that point in time. I had a dream job that I wanted to do. I did an English and American lit degree and I wanted to be a journalist. But by the time I graduated, pretty much all the journalist jobs were drying up. and mm. Journalism was changing radically with uh, computers, etc. So I wanted a job that would keep me in London. So I took a complete punt on a job with a firm called Arthur Anderson. Um, doing expatriate tax, being an expatriate tax advisor, and that kept me in London for nine years. And then from Anderson, I went to work at Morgan Stanley in Canary Wharf. I spent 16 years there and became a managing director and the deputy head of HR for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. And then I decided that I would take a little bit of a a diversion in my career and uh, go back to consulting. So I became a partner at PwC, advising clients like myself. And then after a few years, I decided that I was kind of interested in psychology and the psychology of decision making. So I decided to take myself back to university, spent three years doing a bachelor's in psychology with all of the other undergraduates, um, and then did a PhD in the psychology of decision making. And now wow. I lecture in business and organizational psychology. A very extensive uh, portfolio you got there and a very varied career. And just going back to, to the start of that, really, which was the first sort of major decision, because obviously your dream job was journalism. It was a difficult time during that period. And it was interesting how, you know what, right, I've just got to take the punt and go for something else, because obviously it was difficult with the job market. So just explain to us, uh, sort of like, obviously, Arthur Anderson, that shift from journalism and English literature to, to tax, which is quite a big contrast. Yeah, that was it was pretty scary. I mean, Anderson, obviously, uh, is a firm that has just sort of risen from the ashes again recently. But basically, I spent the sort of first three weeks of my career there doing um, a basic accounting course. I knew nothing about accounting. Most of the other students there were uh, from Oxbridge. They'd done PPE or economics, Mm. so had something of an accounting background. I was an English lit degree, you know, Shakespeare and, and that type of stuff was, was my background. But the, the training was excellent. Um, I was, you know, very determined. I was very competitive. Um, the training was sort of run by young professionals who were actually sort of you know, in the field. Yeah. Uh, and they were really, really good and, and very supportive, particularly of people like me who came from a, you know, a non-relevant background, as it were. So, so what would you say training- is... There, sorry, what would you say there? With you obviously said it was very competitive, and it sounds like you were at a disadvantage when it came to your background in terms of you were doing English lit rather than the PPE Oxford graduate. So, what would you say made you stand out to to the other com- like sort of candidates, if you will? Um, I think that uh, I actually had done a lot of things during my university career. Right. Um, I had 
for example, I w- was the editor of the student newspaper. I had directed plays. Um, I was the chair of the junior college committee. Uh, and I actually really think that, I mean, my degree was, you know, pretty average in those days. You know, I mean, 2-2 was a decent degree, but not a great degree. Um, and I actually think that a lot of those external factors, those sort of other activities, mm-hmm. were what got me through the door, basically. Um, and then once I was in there, you know, it really was just about sort of holding my own and then finding a way to, to excel. I mean, it, it took a lot of hard work to, to get through <laughs> yeah. some of those things. No, I can imagine it. And that's that's something which actually kind of shocked me quite a lot, really, because obviously in such a competitive environment, um, especially sort of down south and it's in tax, something like those extracurricular experiences during university, like screenplay and things like that, is something which you wouldn't necessarily relate to. But I guess, what do you think, like, how did you use those experiences at university to tailor it towards like, you know, I am prepared for this kind of job? So I think really it was a couple of things. One is obviously there were uh, there was a need to be very organised. Whether mm-hmm. you're editing the newspaper, whether you're directing a play, whether you're running the JCC, all of that is about organisation. So I think being on top of organisation. I mean, some might say maybe I did too much, and you know maybe I should have come out with a two-one. Well, you know we can debate that, but it's a long yeah. time ago. Um, so I think being organised was a, a big deal for me, and I tried to be organised. You know, when I first started working, in terms of how I approached the training and how I approached the work, um, relationships also. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I I am I am quite an introvert, so I have to work quite hard to build my relationships. Um, but, you know, doing things like the JCC, directing the plays, all of those things, you know, really kind of forced me to sort of be focused on building relationships and how to build relationships. And I think that was all able to come with me into my professional world. Amazing. So when it was so obviously spent nine, was it nine years there? Yeah. Yeah. So on that relationship point, then, you know, if you can try and picture sort of like the first year or so. And how were you able to develop those relationships inside the firm to then become part of the team? You know, the important thing was, first of all, I had a great, um, a great boss, as it were. She was really fantastic. Uh, she spent a lot of time with me, both on the technical side of things, so helping me, you know, learn about tax, basically. But also she, she was really kind, taking me to client meetings, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched the way that, you know, she also uh, interacted with people around the firm and across the firm. So I think I had a great role model as well. She was a great role model for me. And I think, you know, really finding people who were role models, watching how they interacted with clients, how they interacted around the firm, and then, you know, trying to sort of copy the behavior in a way. <laughs> well, that's a really interesting last point there, like copying the behavior, because obviously as a student going into the professional world, it's, it's a new experience, right? And uh, especially for such a big shift from your experiences from the humanities more to sort of like tax and sort of mathsy side, it's, it's really difficult to sort of get in the swing of things. But you see that copying behavior and learning from those who like your manager and your boss, for example, were, were useful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in those firms, you know, people are very keen to expose you to sort of clients and client mm-hmm. interactions. But, you know, they don't just sort of say, pick up the phone and go do. I mean, generally, they'll, they'll have you sit in on a couple of phone calls, first of all, so you can see how they do things and, and they can introduce you a little bit. Uh, and I think just watching people and how they worked with their clients, how they interacted with their clients, uh, you know, not everyone was necessarily the same, but there were people with, you know, phenomenal client skills um, and, and the ability to build relationships. And mm-hmm. I think watching those people and understanding how they went about it was very important for me. 
And it sounds like that was the, the foundation of your career to, to then excel into other companies. And, and based on that then, you know, at Arthur Anson, how much of a role was that experience for your future career, do you think, especially in the professional services? I mean, I think it was huge. It was absolutely huge. I mean, you know, my, my background was I came I came from Newcastle. I, I didn't even know who Arthur Anderson was. Right. So I'd never had any exposure or experience to a firm like that. Mm. So it was a little bit like stepping into a very sort of very magical, very different, different place. Uh, and I think I learned a huge amount about, you know, being being a professional in London, um, working with clients, working with international people, you know, one of my partners or two of my partners were from the United States. So it was really the first exposure that I'd had to, you know, a much bigger world. Um, on the back of that, I began to do a little bit of traveling. I went to the States a couple of times. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a big sort of personal development for me. Yeah, big step. So moving on from the first step in sort of into your sort of like future sort of career, um, what would you say there was like the the critical sort of metric or decision that you had to make when you're making these big sort of jumps? Because obviously when you went from Arthur Anderson to Morgan Stanley and then also to PwC as well, there's quite a lot of big shifts. So that is such an enormous decision to make. So what helped you through that process? So I think the, I think the point uh, in terms of moving from Anderson to Morgan Stanley, the decision at that point was driven by how or whether I felt I could make a transition into an in-house role. So obviously in a firm like Arthur Anderson, you're an external advisor, you know, you are advising the client, you can have a close relationship with the client, but you're never inside the client, right? I mean, you're not the implementer, you're the advisor and the decision-making is not yours. You, you make decisions, but the client ultimately makes, make, makes the decisions. And I wanted to kind of go beyond that. I wanted to see what was behind the doors uh, what it was like to be on the other side as a client um, and, you know, what it was like to be that decision maker, basically. So that that was a big pull for me to see how I could function in an in-house role as, a, as opposed to an advisor. Yeah, because that, that, again, is another shift in terms of, although you've, the industry and sort of like the, the level of knowledge is probably similar and obviously it's a development, that's quite a big shift. So being external, moving into sort of like an internal, I'd say like family in a will, in a way, what what kind of shift there was it that you experienced and how did you adapt to that? I mean, the, a big thing was moving into HR. I mean, I, I'm, mm. I'm not an HR person by background, although I spent, obviously, I ended up spending 16 years working in HR. Um, and the one of the most fascinating things was, you know, when I was at Anderson as an advisor, I was generating revenue. I, you know, I was making money. I had clients. I had, you know, I was making money for the firm, basically, and I had big clients because I was working with investment banks, basically. Um, you move into HR, you know, and, and HR is, it's an overhead, right? HR doesn't generate money, it's an overhead. So there's all of that to deal with. You go from being a revenue generator and sort of, you know, the, towards the top of the pecking order yeah. to being an overhead and basically a cost. So then I think it, it becomes, a, a, you know, the debate is, you know, as, a, as, a, as an overhead, how do you show value, basically? And I think actually having that consulting background made me more aware of the importance of demonstrating the value of HR and thinking about ways that HR could bring value to the business. Is there a way that you could sort of elaborate on and, and how you actually were able to achieve that value? Because obviously it was really interesting how you, your mentality is from a business perspective of what's the cost of firm or am I a breadwinner versus like an employee mentality. So for, from that sort of HR and you as a role trying to provide value, improving yourself, to the company, how were you able to achieve that? 
Yeah, I think a lot of it, a lot of it is looking at the type of thing that HR does. You know, HR is a big driver of, for example, things like employee engagement, things like which in, in turn drives employee productivity. You know, it's a big driver of things like um, making the firm a great place to work through the introduction of different policies and things of that nature. So I think it's always about having an evidence base and thinking, you know, how can I bring this into my own organization in a way that makes it has, have an impact. You know, if I introduce, I don't know, um, a policy that relates to, um, you know, um, flexible working, for example, how can I make this more than just words on a page, right? Mm. How can I demonstrate the value of this to employees? How can I make employees keep understanding that this is something that's been done by HR and that actually has a value to them because ultimately it makes their lives better. So I think it is through the implementation of, of the introduction and implementation of policy, but effectively making those policies very, very real and keeping them in front of employees. I never wanted to be in a situation where, you know, if I said to someone, what do you think HR does? Their response was just, well, you hire people or you fire people. You know, HR is much more complicated than that and, and, and can bring a, hu a huge amount of value. And it was really through that sort of focus on, you know, how do I make this a great place to work for my employees? Yeah, basically? That's right. And that also that that's kind of reminded me of your boss, at Arthur Anderson, for example, where that role model is, is being there an active role for employees and sort of uh, new sort of uh, employees as well. You kind of like, did you say that you did say like take that, into Morgan Stanley and create that ethos there as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a bit, there was a, I, I, you know, I had a view that, you know, yes, we're, we're, we are in an in-house role. We are here to sort of introduce policy, implement policy or whatever. But, you know, there's a consultative element to that too. I mean, there's a synthesis of data. You take data from, you know, ad other advisors or what other firms are doing. And then you think about the best way to, you know, to make it land in the organization, right? Um, and then to keep it in front of employees. You know, you can't just, well, I'm sure you know this, you can't just land something once. You have to keep repeating it and revisiting it, shaking it up, changing it around, refreshing the communication, refreshing the approach. And I, I think that having been a consultant, I had a bit more of an appreciation for that, perhaps. Yeah, like that external sort of angle to things as well. Exactly. So with uh, Morgan Stanley, obviously you rose through the ranks and it's amazing how um, you then became managing director. So from there to then make the jump to, to PwC, what, explain your thought process behind that and what you wanted to achieve with it. Yeah, I mean, there was, it was another sort of big, big question moment as well, because, you know, I left Anderson. Um, I was a senior manager, so I hadn't, um, hadn't made partner before I decided mm -hmm. to make the move to Morgan Stanley. So, you know, those, those, consult those big four, big four firms, big consulting firms, exert a bit of a sort of um, magic around, you know, the role of partner. And I have to admit that, you know, that magic hadn't quite gone away. And, and so there was a question mark in my mind, there was a bit of unfinished business, you know, could you, could you function as a partner in, in a firm like that? Obviously, Anderson didn't exist by then. Mm. Um, and so, um, you know, I chose to to go to PwC where I became a partner. So I went back on the sort of consulting wow. side and the advisory side at that point. So so what was your experiences in PwC like? So obviously you you made it as sort of like your little sort of like magical accomplishment that you always wanted to go for. What was those experiences like at PwC compared to Morgan Stanley? I mean, it was very interesting. I would say I would say the most challenging thing that I found was um, going from being that internal decision maker 
to being an advisor again. Mm-hmm. And, and that was quite a tough change for me, for me personally, I think, because I'd been the decision maker in the decision making chair for so long at Morgan Stanley. And then to go back to being an advisor and you, you pump advice in, but you, you, you know, it's for the client to decide what they take, what they don't take from, from that advice. And, you know, your, your involvement almost ceases at the point where you give the advice, you know, so, so that was, that was a tough transition that I found actually. No, I can imagine that, it's especially it's like you're going back to Arthur Anderson days in terms of your mentality of how to work as well. It's did, did it feel like a step would back like a backward step, or was it more progress for you in terms of the role itself, not not necessarily the title? I think it was definitely progress. Mm. Um, I mean, it. Uh, I, I was very comfortable in Morgan Stanley. I'd been there mm. for 16 years. You know, wonderful firm. So much, you know, there for, there for employees. But I needed to, um, I think I needed to step out of that, that comfort zone in a way. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely progress. And also, I mean, it took me back into kind of, um, you know, a sort of a selling role. Uh, obviously, you know, in those firms, you know, yeah. it is about selling business. It is about, about winning business, which is not the same in an internal role. You do sell, but it's a different kind of sell. It's about, you know, it's a convincing sell to help someone you know hopefully make the decision that you want them to make so so that 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 again was an interesting transition um and and I learned you know I I learned things about selling uh probably that I'm not actually very good when it comes to selling was one thing that I learned but uh but I definitely considered it to be a step forward yeah I'm very proud of that period so Oh, proud of the the PwC. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, of course. I'm so proud of all my roles, to be honest. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I think you touched on it earlier, which is like, especially within the big four, there is this sort of like magic behind like the partner role, and I think that anyone who seriously considers going into the big four or even other consultancy firms, that the the partner title is like the holy grail, right? It's something which you you want to achieve for, and it's amazing that you accomplished it um, there as well. So. Moving forward into sort of like your experiences and then looking back at it in hindsight, our listeners are university students. They're looking to get into the big four or other big consultancy firms or professional services firms. What would you say to students now that they can actually practically, like actions they can practically do today in order to sort of transition into the professional world later on? So, I mean, I, I think there are two or three things that I would focus on. I mean, the first thing is, and obviously not every, you know, the subject that I'm involved in now, psychology, it, it is quite a data-driven subject, but I do think that data is king in the professional world these days. You cannot get away from it. Um, and I think even, even if you're not, you know, dealing with data every day, to sort of be confident about, about handling data, understanding it, and telling a story with it, I think is, is a big thing. So I would say, you know, focus on data. If you're involved in a subject that, you know, includes statistics, everyone hates statistics. <laughs> Try and banish that from your mind, you know. Try and engage with the data. It's a really, really valuable tool. Second thing is I would say, you know, try and start to learn the language of business as quickly as you can. And I think LinkedIn is a great tool for that. Uh, you know, the, the language of academia is not the language of business. And, you know, there, rightly or wrongly, there are a lot of academics who have only ever been in academia. And I think sometimes they, you know, they, they, they struggle to sort of help students understand what the language of business is all about. And I think LinkedIn can be a, a really great help with that. Mm, definitely, yeah. I also think that um, um, the other thing that I would say is, uh, you know, when you're thinking about your studies, always try and think about the application 
to the world out there. You know, it's very easy when you're sitting in a room just kind of learning the lessons, as it were, doing the lessons to, to not sort of be thinking beyond that, but try and develop that sort of thinking really from the from the very beginning. You know, what what how does this relate to the outside world? I mean, even when I think back now and look at English literature, you know, Shakespeare was making political statements. You know, that's the reality. Um, but it took me a long time to sort of fully understand and appreciate that because of what I came to understand about that period of English history, which I didn't understand back then. Yeah, okay. Just to focus on that last point as well, as a university lecturer at Kent in the business sort of department, is there anything that you recommend to your students over at Kent that to, to actually practically, okay, they've just received a lecture and they've, they've gone to their seminars and they've learned some sort of business topic, whatever that is. Is there anything practical that you would say to make that connection to the professional world? I mean, I do think I, I'm a great believer in reflective learning. Mm. So, I mean, what I try and encourage my students to do is basically go away and, and reflect on the learning, but not only reflect on the learning, but, you know, where it might fit into the world out there, basically, whether it's their own experiences or, or whatever it is, you know, maybe you experience something yourself in a bar or, or whatever, you know, in the days when we could do those types of things. Uh, and I think it's, you know, there's always an application, you know, it doesn't have to be voiced in a fancy psychological theory mm -hmm. in, in the case of my own subject. But, you know, you look at it and think, okay, I see that that actually could be about the subject Dawn was talking, talking about earlier. So I think it's about looking for those scenarios and then thinking, okay, is this, is this something that would actually fit this theory? And I do believe that reflection is a very important part of the learning experience, both personally and, you know, academically and professionally. Yeah, so with students who have listened now and hopefully they've taken those three points on board and um, using them, they can then begin to enter the professional world with a, with a confident mindset. You said about the data, being, being confident with data, for example, using LinkedIn and then being sort of, reaction, sort of reflective on your uh, learning at university. So let's say they've, they've graduated university and they've stepped through the door, you know, in their nice fresh suit, ready to, to do their first day. What would you recommend to a new graduate inside a really big firm like PwC or Morgan Stanley? Okay, so I mean, I think I think there's, a, there's an important thing here. The important the important thing, you know, do, doing a degree is great. Getting a degree mm. is fantastic. The important thing when you step into any new scenario, including a workplace scenario, is to understand that actually you don't know very much at that point. You know, so I think it's it's not about showing off what you know. It's about being, you know, sort of very open and receptive to understanding what you don't know. That's how you, you know, can then sort of watch those, the role models. That's how you can understand, you know, you don't know how a client works. You know, you don't know what the client's going on. I mean, you, you don't know what the politics are. You don't know what the interplays are. Um, so I think, you know, you, you may have some idea of the technical content of the job, but sometimes it's, you know, it goes way beyond the technical content, right? So my starting point is, you know, in a way, start by assuming you know nothing. Um, and, you know, that might be hard, particularly when you're coming out and you're proud of your, you know, degree, first, two, one, whatever it is. But, you know, start by basically assuming you know nothing and then try and make yourself as open and receptive as you possibly can to the learning experience. And it's not always going to go smoothly, Oliver, you know, there are going to be times when you're going to misstep or things are going to go wrong. Someone's going to have to pull you back for it or pull you up. Right. So, and try and take those um, in the way that they are intended, which is, you know, this is about improving you, improving your understanding of the client, the job, 
whatever it is, right? Okay, so like when people experience those challenges, and obviously they're unavoidable, there are always going to be challenges like that, and especially for younger sort of students going into the professional world. Let's say there is a challenge that people experience in that working environment, especially in big firms, which are very competitive amongst peers, but also there's that culture, which I think is unique, especially with the big four. If someone is experiencing that challenge, how can they practically move forward and make progress by communicating with their team or with the business as a whole? You have to be very open. I mean, I think the the most important thing going with that, you know, assuming that you know nothing, is telling people when you don't understand or you don't get it, you know? No one expects everyone to know everything. Even partners don't know everything, right? So we're all learning. We're all still learning. So I think, you know, yes, those those firms can be competitive, but, you know, they no firm wants anyone to fail, right? No firm wants anyone to fail. That's the starting point. They've started, they've invested a lot of money to bring you in. They've invested a lot of money in training you and supporting you. So the most important thing is, you know, if you don't get something, put your hand, you know, metaphorically speaking, put your hand up and say, I don't get this. I'm not quite sure what this is meant to be telling me, Dawn. You know, I can't quite get there. Can you, you know, give me a hand across the line basically? So I think I think just to be very very honest about you know what you do and don't know, and you know ask for help when you need to ask for help. There's no ask shame in help. that. Yeah, that's it's a very difficult thing to do that, especially the first time. I mean, I remember when I was working for Ewa Mitchell, which was like a small law firm, and I remember when I was approached with that challenge when I didn't have to do something. It's a very difficult barrier to overcome. Is there anything that you would recommend um, to sort of younger sort of graduates to to physically be able to say that or identify the person to say it to? I mean, I, I think the first, th- always your your immediate boss, generally there's someone who, you know, you, you are reporting into is is probably is the right starting point. Right. Um, and I think the way that, the way that I would always tr- sort of try and look at it is, you know, if you go to someone and say, I just don't know how to do this versus you know, I've, I've tried a couple of things. I've looked in a couple of places and I actually can't, I can't get anywhere with this. Then they know you've had a go, right? Um, I mean, most people will probably say, you know, try looking here, try looking there, maybe, maybe check this out. And if you come back and say, I don't know how to do this. And they say, well, did you try looking in the places that I pointed you to? And you say, no, then that makes them think, well, you know, did you did you make that much of an effort or not, right? Whereas I think if you can indicate that, you know, you've you've tried, you've had a go, then I think, you know, it it shows that you've you've made an effort. And then the learning experience, you know, becomes becomes very different for both of us, mm-hmm. right? So I think it's always about, I always used to say to, you know, to people who were in my team, you know, if you come to me with a problem, that's fine, we'll fix the problem. But, you know, when you come to me with the problem, can you start by sort of saying, okay, we've got this problem, I've tried to solve it in this way or that way, and then the conversation is very different. It's more of a learning experience for you and for me, right? Mm, it's, it's very solution-driven, it's that optimistic exactly. mindset, rather than being, oh, I don't know how to do it, I'm just going to ask and shortcut exactly. it. No, exactly. I love that. So uh, just to finish off, Dawn, what one book would you recommend to our listeners today? So I am a decision-making 
um, guru, I suppose, for <laughs> want of a better word. So, so there's a book by a guy named Daniel Kahneman. Um, Daniel Kahneman actually is a is like a legend in psychology, although he won the Nobel Prize for um, economics. Um, and Daniel's book is called um, Thinking Fast and Slow, and it talks a lot about decisions and how decisions are made. Uh, and it will change the way that you think about decisions. Decision making is a hugely underrated skill. Um, sometimes you do just take a punt. I mean, I got lucky, right? But but sometimes you need to sort of sit down and think about the decision and whether or not it makes sense. So um, I would recommend Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Amazing. Is there anything from that book that you use practically or it's changed your mindset specifically? Uh, I mean, again, I think it's about understanding the way that decisions are made, that decisions, you know, yes, we we have these two ways of thinking. We have a sort of system one, which is our unconscious way of thinking, which, you know, shortcuts everything. And that's fine for what we need for a lot of the a lot of the day, a lot of our lives. Right. And we couldn't operate without it because there's so much unconscious information going through mm -hmm. us all of the time that we need that ability to shortcut. But there are times when the shortcutting can make us lazy. Um, yeah. And the, the option, the, the other alternative, system two, requires a bit more work, requires a bit more effort. And we are fundamentally humans are lazy, right? So yeah. we don't like that bit of extra effort, but sometimes you've got to put that extra effort in. I love that. Well, thank you very much, John. And thank you guys for listening today. Amazing. Well, until next week, keep learning and get earning.